NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Thanks to you at home for joining me this hour. After 47 days of fighting, 47 days of Israeli hostages held in captivity, Israel and Hamas have agreed to a four-day pause in fighting in exchange for the release of 50 hostages. But the timing of it all may still be an open question. Now, the deal was brokered by Qatar, Egypt, and the United States, and it was all supposed to start by 3 a.m. Eastern time tonight. But Israeli officials are now saying that the release of hostages will not happen before Friday. What that means for the timing of the temporary ceasefire is unclear. The New York Times reports that the ceasefire may also be delayed until Friday, but NBC News has not confirmed this. The deal itself involves the release of 50 civilian women and children currently held by Hamas, the release of 150 Palestinian women and children currently held in Israeli jails, and the delivery of more humanitarian aid to Gaza. U.S. officials have warned that we won't know for sure which hostages will be released until they are actually released. But National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told NBC News today that three Americans should be part of this initial group of 50, two women and a child. The hostages will be released in four phases, one group for each day the fighting is paused. Around 10 hostages are expected to be freed every day over the course of four days beginning on Friday. Now, there is an option for this system of ceasefire and release to go on as long as 10 days. An additional 10 hostages would be released for each day there is a pause in fighting. So today is a hopeful day, but it is also the start of a week filled with anxiety as family members of hostages wait to see if their loved ones will be among those released. It's been so so long. We've been stuck on October 7th for 45 days, looping this in our minds over and over again. And just to have a sliver of hope and just a break already, just a break. No information. I'm very nervous and, and frustrated. And I, I'm waiting for news. I want just good news. I don't want any bad news anymore. One side, I'm, I'm happy. Second, uh, I'm I'm worried, okay, because uh, nobody told me that my uh, family will be this in this uh, this uh, uh, deal, okay. There was 40 children inside Gaza, and they go to only 30. Where are the others? I don't know. American officials cannot confirm which hostages will be released, though certain family members, like the mother of 23-year-old Israeli-American hostage Hirsch Goldberg-Poland, they already believe their loved ones are not likely to be among these first 50 released. Goldberg-Poland is a young man, and the deal struck today is limited to women and children. Instead, his mother has another demand. Videos of the October 7th attack show that her son was severely injured. Half of his left arm was blown off by a grenade. Here was his mother's plea today. I'm not counting hostages being freed in this deal until I see them walk over the border and be embraced safely. And then 
God willing, these 50 hostages are released, that still leaves another 190 hostages that need to be released. And in the meantime, we would like the International Red Cross or any other humanitarian aid organization on planet Earth to go and see every single hostage and let us know, are they alive? Have they been treated? Are they getting the care that they need? Hours after that plea, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced that as part of the deal, the Red Cross will get to visit unreleased hostages to provide care. That, that detail was negotiated so secretly and at the last minute that the Red Cross put out a statement saying the organization itself only learned of this development from Netanyahu's remarks. The Red Cross followed up by saying that it stands ready to conduct visits whenever it is allowed. As the details of this highly choreographed exchange of 50 hostages are ironed out, the hope here is that this will be the start of a process that could return all of the hostages still inside Gaza. But keeping these negotiations on track is a delicate balance and a tense one. The situation is equally tense inside Gaza tonight. I will warn you that some of the images we are about to show you are unsettling. So if you'd like to turn away now, this is the time to do so. This is a video of a mass grave being dug today in Khan Yunus in the southern half of Gaza. More than 100 people were buried there anonymously today, part of the 14,000 who have died since the beginning of this conflict. That's according to the Hamas-run Gaza media office. That number includes more than 5,000 children. And the fighting in Gaza has not yet stopped. It is expected to continue right up until that pause, whether that's at 3 a.m. Eastern tonight or later in the week. One of the details that has still not yet been confirmed here in this agreement is how much aid gets into Gaza and how quickly. Maybe the most contentious and desperately needed aid in Gaza right now is fuel. This is video from yesterday of internally displaced Gazans pushing past each other and essentially breaking apart an aid truck. They were looking for water. According to the United Nations, around 70% of Gazans are drinking salinized and contaminated water. Without fuel, Gazans have been unable to power desalination plants, water pumps, and sewage pumps, leaving more than a million people without clean drinking water or sanitary living conditions. And then there are Gaza's hospitals. Because of the lack of fuel, this week the World Health Organization said that critical trauma care is no longer possible at any of Gaza's hospitals. That includes care for premature babies in neonatal intensive care units, or NICUs as they are known. Over the weekend, the UN and the Red Crescent evacuated 31 of 36 NICU babies from the Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza. The UN reports that the other five babies died due to a lack of electricity and fuel. All 31 of the evacuated babies have serious infections. One of them is on a ventilator. The World Health Organization warns that even though this group of babies made it out, around 180 women give birth every day in Gaza. So the need for care like this will not go away, not to mention the need to care for the tens of thousands of other wounded Gazans, which would also require fuel. Now, allowing more fuel into Gaza is an explicit part of this deal, but how much of it and how quickly it gets in, that is all unclear. The broad strokes of this deal are in place, but that is just step one. All of the details here are important. Many of them are matters of life and death. 
and many of them are still being worked out as we speak. Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor for President Obama and co-host of the podcast Pod Save the World. Ben, thank you so much for being here, my friend. I want to get right to the question of the hostages. There's been a lot of reporting on how this deal kind of came together, but sort of buried in that reporting is this reality. And I'm quoting from David Ignatius's reporting in The Washington Post. Though the captives have often been described as being entirely under Hamas's control, an Israeli official says a total of about of a total of about 100 Israeli women and children, including toddlers and babies, Hamas had immediate access to the only to only to the 50 who will be released. Ben, in your eyes, how how complicated and how problematic is it if the reality is that Hamas only actually knows about and is in control of a fraction of these uh, approximately 250 hostages that are inside Gaza? Yeah, Alex, you have to think about all the complexity that goes into this. I mean, first of all, the negotiations were taking place through Qatar, the Qatari government, which has uh, hosting a Hamas political office in Doha. Those Hamas political leaders then are in touch with Hamas leaders on the ground in Gaza. And you have a situation where these hostages were taken in a chaotic and awful and violent circumstance, where there are other groups operating in addition to Hamas, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, apparently took some of these hostages as well. And over the course of the last 45 days, you've had a war zone. You've had a bombardment uh, of Gaza. And so just think of how complicated it is to identify where these people are, who's holding them, who has the authority to move them, uh, who is in communication up through the Hamas chain of command to Qatar, to the United States. Uh, This is a very complicated, multifaceted negotiation. Now that there's an agreement in place and everybody seems committed to following through on this deal, now it's the additional work that has to be done to find these people and to co-locate them and to bring them to safety and to figure out how to transfer them to Israeli custody. So it's not a surprise to me that this might take uh, a a couple of days in order to just begin these releases. I I think tragically and painfully, it also suggests how hard it's going to be to continue to find additional hostages to release, assuming you can keep this deal going and go beyond the 50 that are slated to be released in these first several days. Yeah. Just to to that end, Ben, when you talk about the logistical difficulty, I wonder if there's a further complexity between the desires of some of the jihadist groups that may have these hostages. Apparently, there are just families inside Gaza that are holding to some of these hostages and Hamas. Would you assume that these groups are effectively standing shoulder to shoulder with whatever Hamas is negotiating with the Israelis via Qatar? Or could there could there be separate demands on their behalf? You know, I, I you know, none of us know. I mean, I think we have to start from the premise that nobody knows exactly what's going on here. Uh, I would think, though, Alex, that you have a situation where Hamas with command and control has a certain number of these hostages. Then beyond that, there may be other elements, factions like Islamic Jihad that may want to hold on to hostages for their own leverage. Or there may even be there's some reports that they're just criminal elements who may want to hold hostages for ransom. Uh, and it may just be in the chaos of war that some of these hostages are among the population there uh, trying to find shelter as well. So it's a complicated endeavor. Uh, I think what you try to do in any diplomacy is test whether the other party can deliver on what they say. So it will be an important test of Hamas's capacity to deliver on their own commitments to see if they can follow through on 10 hostages a day. That might at least give you confidence that you have a mechanism set up to try to secure additional releases going forward. 
Yeah. To that end, how optimistic are you that this agreement could last beyond the initial four days and 50 hostages? And, and when I when I as a sort of addendum to that, I just want to read this excerpt in The New York Times that details how difficult it was to get to this point. On November 14th, there's a sense that this deal is going to come together. Netanyahu calls President Biden to say he could accept Hamas's offer. But just hours after the call, the IDF storms Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza, and suddenly communications between Hamas and all the other official parties go silent. And when Hamas resurfaces hours later, they make clear the deal was off. I mean, Israel has been very clear that it would like this war to continue. Uh, on the eve of the, the deal initially potentially being agreed upon, they go ahead and raid Al-Shifa Hospital for their strategic ends, according to Israel. But I just wonder what that indicates to you about Israel's appetite to keep a ceasefire going, even if it could mean the release of hostages every day. You know, I think it's a really important question, Alex. And first of all, I just want to say something clearly as someone who had to deal in government with hostage situations in difficult circumstances and none, frankly, as difficult as Gaza, this densely populated area with two million people, most of whom are displaced, probably most of whom are homeless right now. Uh, the reality is it's going to be much easier to secure their safe release through diplomacy than through military operations. That's just a fact. Uh, and so there's a, a, like a discordance between the objective of sustaining a ground operation and this kind of bombardment we've seen of Gaza and trying to secure the safety of these hostages. And I think the U.S. has really been trying to press the Israeli government uh, to take into account the fact that it's easier to get the hostages out through negotiation. There was also pressure within Israel and the Israeli government to put more of a focus on the hostages than the military operation itself. Now, Prime Minister Netanyahu, we know he tacks right. We also know that he has some right-wing members of his own government who really don't want to see this military operation pause, who have much more maximalist op uh, objectives uh, in mind in Gaza. And they're going to be putting pressure on him to show that the military operation is going to resume. Now, I think there's going to be countervailing pressure, Alex, because the world is looking in horror at the same images that you showed today. Uh, they've almost five, over 5,000 children have been killed. You have a siege mentality. You have, as you pointed out, the capacity for waterborne illnesses. If you're not getting water and fuel in, that could lead to many, many more deaths, uh, not through violence, but through those kinds of waterborne illnesses. So the idea of pausing this for several days and then just picking right back up where we were, I think that that's going to cause a significant amount of international blowback. And frankly, from within the United States, some concern about where is this all going? Uh, yeah. So I think the best case scenario is you try to extend this pause and get more hostages and see if you can have diplomacy to de-escalate the conflict. Can we just talk really quickly about that diplomacy? Uh, the Times has a quote from some senior American officials who signal they would not be disappointed if the pause became a more permanent ceasefire. Is that the administration's best route to actually calling for a ceasefire? I mean, it's very clear that President Biden was intimately involved in these negotiations. According to The New York Times, he is the one that pressured uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to take the deal as it currently stands. Does the Biden administration not have more leverage here if indeed they actually would not be disappointed if a ceasefire happened? 
I think they do. I mean, they have diplomatic leverage in the sense of if they start taking a position that is calling for a ceasefire or calling for de-escalation, that makes it harder for Israel to sustain its operations, given the international pressure that they're facing. I think the other reality, Alex, is where is this all going? If you think about it at the beginning, President Biden literally wrapped his arms around Prime Minister Netanyahu, full solidarity. We know that that's where this started. We know that there's major disagreement between the U.S. and Israeli government about where this ends. The U.S. has said the Palestinian Authority is going to have to take command or control or or responsibility for Gaza. There's some proposals about an Arab peacekeeping force. But we know that Prime Minister Netanyahu has said, no, 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 no. We're going to have to sustain security responsibility and some kind of administrative control over Gaza for kind of an open-ended period of time. That's a huge gap. So the question is, how long does this military operation go? How maximalist are the objectives? And what is the end goal? Is the end goal to have a Palestinian governing authority in Gaza and people that can return to their homes that are being rebuilt? Or is the end goal a kind of de facto Israeli occupation? And I think the sooner you begin to address those questions, Alex, uh, the better. Because and, and I think a pause is a good time to address those questions and say to the Israeli government, look, we, we share your objective of dislodging Hamas, but what's happening now is a humanitarian catastrophe that is causing a lot of international tension. And frankly, Hamas's political leadership, some of it's out of the country. Uh, Hamas is probably blended into that civilian population of, of over a million people that have been pushed south uh, in Gaza. The ability to kind of go one by one and eliminate Hamas in that kind of environment is very difficult and could lead to a significant loss of life. And so I think the administration is going to want to be putting forward these questions now about what is the objective? Where is this going? How do we minimize civilian harm? How do we ensure aid is continuing to get into people so that this doesn't escalate as a humanitarian crisis? And then how do we address uh, Hamas both militarily, but also through a political strategy that replaces them with some alternative Palestinian leadership? Ben Rhodes asking the questions that we do not yet have answers to. My friend, thank you so much for your time and wisdom this evening. Thanks, Alex. Coming up, the decline and fall maybe, of the DeSantis campaign after spending $100 million and falling to fifth place in the polling. The blame game begins in DeSantis' world. But first, Trump talks and talks some more. Today we got an update on the sheer number of threats unleashed on the subjects of Donald Trump's verbal attacks. We'll have more on that next. At KPMG, Our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. While you were out today grabbing a last-minute bag of frozen cranberries, Donald Trump was lashing out at the judges and prosecutors in his New York and D.C. cases, ranting about the crooked and biased prosecutors working closely with my political opponent. Trump is currently free to say whatever he wants, at least for now, about Judge Arthur Angoron and his court staff in Trump's $250 million civil fraud case. 
That is happening while an appeals court decides whether to revoke Judge Ngoron's gag order. But things could soon change for Donald Trump. Today, an attorney for Judge Ngoron argued in support of keeping that gag order, citing the alarming increase in threats against the judge and his clerk since the gag order was temporarily lifted. Since Trump posted a picture of the judge's clerk online last month, she has received 20 to 30 calls a day on her personal cell phone and 30 to 50 daily messages on her personal email and social media accounts. In today's filing, the court attorney said the hundreds of threatening and harassing voicemail messages fills more than 275 single-spaced pages. Roughly half of those messages, the filing states, have been anti-Semitic. Meanwhile, we continue to await a ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is expected to impose a narrow gag order limiting what Trump can say before his federal election interference trial in D.C. Joining me now is Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter for Politico, and Christy Greenberg, former criminal division deputy chief for the Southern District of New York. Thank you both for being here. Um, Christy, the evidence that the attorney for the court present today, presented today is staggering. And there's no mistaking the catalyst for these hate-filled screeds, voicemails, messages, whatever. It is when Donald Trump posts pictures and posts messages about this judge and his clerk. How does the appeals sort of process balance, yes, Trump's First Amendment rights, but, but quite obviously the security concerns that are on the table here? Well, the judge has to. The judge has to look at this in balance. You don't have, particularly as a defendant, either in a civil case, as it is in New York, or in a criminal case, as he has in D.C. and in Florida, you don't have an unfettered right to say whatever you want to say. You are in a court proceeding, and there are countervailing interests here, in particular the safety of the people that are involved. And when you look at some of these messages, just looking at the sampling that were in there, they are vile. The messages against the clerk were wishing her death and demise. I mean, they are sickening. And the worst part about it is in the affidavit that was put in, the Department of Public Safety, so these are the police that are that are helping the court administrators, said they found these were credible violent threats. Right. Right. They researched, they looked into this and they substantiated them. They found that they were credible. And so they got the FBI involved and Homeland Security involved to make sure there are security measures in place to protect them. But every time they found when Donald Trump opened his mouth and threatened and attacked these people, the threats went up. And so it just enough is enough already. Like there just has to be a gag order that has teeth that will be enforced. That's going to shut him up and stop it. Like this is completely unacceptable. I would also just say, you know, it's Donald Trump himself could stop doing it, too. There are not a lot of former presidents in this club of people who willingly put out messages that foment violence against innocent civilians. I digress. Uh, (laughs) Josh, we are waiting for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to decide whether to revoke Judge Chutkin's gag order down in D.C. And you wrote earlier this week, this panel is likely not the final word. The losing side may appeal the panel's decision to the full bench of appeals or the Supreme Court. Now, Judge Chutkin has been adamant about keeping this trial on track. And yet, um, how optimistic are you that she will be able to, given the fact that this could be an opportunity for further delays? 
Well, I think the gag order is just a small part of the maneuverings that could happen in advance of this uh, March 4th trial date. Uh, you know, it may end up at the Supreme Court. I think, though, Alex, if there's a snag that starts to delay the trial, it's more likely to be around some of the very broad claims. In fact, the claims of absolute immunity that uh, former President Trump has put forward in the case, basically saying that he sh- cannot be prosecuted for these events because they involve things that took place while he was president. Uh, we expect Judge Chuckin to deny the motions he's already brought on those grounds. And and those I could see definitely going to the D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court. And, and those are the ones that I think if we derail the trial date, it'll be coming from that particular direction. Yeah. I mean, Christy, we know that Trump has filed a reply in support of his this is as of as I was walking to set in support of his motion to dismiss uh, the case for selective and vindictive prosecution tonight. I mean, am I wrong when I say uh, believe that this is the sort of throw everything at the wall and see what sticks like delay strategy? It is. And I think this was clearly expected based on all of his rhetoric, based on what his lawyers were saying. It's not surprising that he's making this this kind of motion, because, again, for him, it's always that he's the victim, even though he's the one, as we know from everything that he's saying, that's actually putting other people at in at danger and risk for their own safety. But it's always that the people are are continually attacking him. And so, again, I don't think this is going to have much to it. There is ample evidence in the D.C. indictment that's speaking indictment, ample evidence of there being probable cause that they had a worthy case to bring. And so I, this will be summarily dismissed. Uh, Josh, to that, to, I mean, there are some things the judges here can control and some things they can't. I mean, the appellate court is one thing and the Supreme Court is another. And I guess I would imagine, I mean, it, we are sitting here at Thanksgiving effectively. As you point out, the Chutkin case is, go to, is supposed to go to trial March 4th. And then there is Judge Cannon down in Florida who seems to... Um, have not said forthrightly, I'd like to delay, delay the case. But in your writing uh, this week, you point out that Cannon is surely aware of the suspicion about her in some quarters. That has led some lawyers to conclude she may already know the trial is unlikely to start in May, but sees no reason at the moment to ignite the firestorm she would face if she puts it off. Um, there is at this point no real reason to believe this trial is going to happen when it is supposed to. Is that fair to say, Josh? Uh, that's what all the legal experts I talked to said, including the ones that have handled cases involving classified information, uh, criminal prosecutions. They think that uh, what uh, Judge Cannon is up to here, the lawyers sometimes call uh, taking a position sub silentio in in uh, Latin, meaning that, you know, you don't come right out and say it, but it's effectively what you're doing. If you slide all the deadlines by, in some cases, as long as three months, um, even though you don't say we're putting off the trial date, you're putting it off. And part of the issue here, Alex, is it's not as simple as sort of an ordinary case. Maybe it'd be delayed a week or two. You look at what a delay of more than a week or so in that uh, trial date would mean. It would mean that the trial could collide, for example, with the Republican National Convention, or it could slip into August or September, which really is the heart of the general election campaign if we assume that uh, former President Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. So a lot of people think if that trial doesn't get underway by the end of May or the beginning of June at the absolute latest, it's realistically only going to happen after the election. And of course, that means it might not happen at all. Right. Well, adding more more stakes as if we needed them to the uh, presidential election, November 2024. Josh Gerstein, Christy Greenberg, thank you guys both for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank we you. have more ahead this evening. Chief Justice John Roberts 
and his long battle against the Voting Rights Act, what it tells us about the future of voting rights in the case that is coming before the high court. But first, what do you get when you pour $100 million into Ron DeSantis' bid for the presidency? No, really, what do you get? Stay with us. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We know her as Crooked Hillary, but to Nikki Haley, she's her role model, the reason she ran for office. I often say that the reason I got into politics was because of Hillary Clinton. You write about her being a big inspiration for you in terms of a leader. She is actually the reason that I made the jump. That's an ad from the newly formed super PAC Fight Right, which is taking aim at former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley on behalf of another Republican presidential candidate, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, Fight Right was formed only in the last week amid the, shall we say, declining confidence in the work of another pro-DeSantis super PAC, Never Back Down, whose attacks against Governor Haley have largely backfired. Never Back Down spent a staggering $100 million in the past nine months alone in support of the DeSantis candidacy, which is really something when you consider polling that shows the Florida governor ranked fifth in New Hampshire. NBC News got an inside look at the hand-wringing and finger-pointing inside DeSantis land. I'm a bit agitated these guys have spent all this money for no return, one DeSantis contributor said. You don't just keep throwing money at Radio Shack. Joining me now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic. Mark, you called the DeSantis problems before anybody else was aware of them. But I wonder what you make of this, this uh, shall we say, the circular firing squad that seems to have developed among his big dollar donors. I mean, do you think that never back down PAC's problem is that its ads are bad or that people genuinely are choosing Nikki Haley over Ron DeSantis? I mean, I would say generally that the never back down fiasco that seems to be happening in real time is at least a distraction from the, you know, the somewhat fiasco campaign of Ron DeSantis himself over the last eight to 10 months. So, I mean, this is kind of one crisis on top of another crisis. Um, look, I mean, the irony here, first of all, is never back down. I mean, it looks like eventually this super PAC might have to back down and they're being replaced. Um, but look, I mean, this is a campaign that has 
been basically a disaster for the last year. And I think Nikki Haley has been a beneficiary of that. But I also think Nikki Haley has been a beneficiary of running what has probably been the best race in, in the Republican field. I mean, the problem that each of them have, unfortunately, is each other, because the math problem is that they both ultimately have to beat Donald Trump. And while they're fighting each other, I mean, Donald Trump's going to love, you know, seeing the two of them, you know, go after each other like this. And he's obviously the winner here. Do you think, though, and I say this with, a, you know, a grain of salt, a fistful of salt, that the candidates that are also Rands are sort of learn, have maybe learned the lesson of 2016, uh, which is don't don't stay in the race longer than you're actually really factually welcome. I mean, you have seen some some, shall we say, exfoliation of of folks like Tim Scott. Right. You know, the, the, the folks that were that were effectively taking votes away from the, the anti-Trump, uh, uh, the eventual anti-Trump candidate, uh, whoever he or she may be. Uh, right. Do you think that there is an awareness inside the field that things need to be different this time in a way that they you know, the lesson is learned? <laughs> Yeah, I would say a couple things. I mean, one, I mean, Mike Pence, Tim Scott were basically fringe figures when you look at what they were drawing percentage wise, you know, the money they were raising and so forth. I mean, they ceased to become real threats to anyone, you know, by the time they got out. So I'm not sure that they selflessly said, okay, we must, you know, consolidate the field in order to stop Donald Trump. I, mean, I have no indication that either of them was thinking that way. They just seem to be responding to their own ineptitude. And the problem is with the people who are left. I mean, especially when you look at DeSantis, Haley, Christie, I mean, maybe Vivek, I guess, if you want to look at him, too. These are not, I mean, these are big ego personalities who don't strike me as people who will sort of band together and consolidate their effort for the good of the party and for the good of stopping Trump. I mean, they all have their own, um, you know, their own interests. They have their own sort of loyalty tree to Trump himself. And, you know, it doesn't sound like DeSantis is the kind of guy who's going to say, okay, spent all this money, spent all this time. I'm going to just sort of bow to Nikki Haley now and let her sort of carry the torch from here on out. Because to what end? I mean, he's shown no interest really to this point in doing that and vice versa. So, again, I mean, ultimately, the problem comes down to math. And, and that's to the great benefit of Donald Trump. Well, yeah. And your 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 point about the egos involved right. here is is well taken, given the NBC News reporting of just the what was happening among the, the, the heads of these various super PACs. I'll read an excerpt. You have a stick up your bleep, Scott said uh, Jeff Rowe, fuming at uh, a member of the Never Back, uh, Never Back Down board. Well, why don't you come over here and get it? Wagner responded, not no relation, rising from his chair. He was quickly restrained by two fellow board members. I mean, we saw Mark Wayne Mullen almost come to fisticuffs in the Senate with a union leader last week. We now see Republican super PAC heads threatening violence with one each, one, one another. I mean, how reflective of, is this of the broader Republican Party? And to, to, to your earlier point, I mean, what does it indicate about anybody being able to be the adult in the room as it concerns scuttling the candidacy of Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, the, the adult in the room industry is, has seen better days in the Republican Party. I mean, I do think, though, that... Um, you know, but just the quality of the trash talk within the Republican ranks. I mean, even like the, the, the Kevin McCarthy, Tim Burchett thing, when like someone asked McCarthy if he actually elbowed him in the kidneys and said, oh, if I hit him in the kidneys, he would have known it or something, whatever it was. They, they really need to up their trash talk game within the larger farce that we're talking about here. I mean, ultimately, I, I do think this is emblematic to some degree of a, of a pretty unserious party right now, but it's also quintessentially Trumpian and quintessentially, um, you know, of the 
the spirit and of the chaos and of the childishness that, that he kind of brought to the dance in 2016, which has been the identity of the party. And it's been basically the dominant force for much of America for the last five, you know, six, seven years. And, you know, here we are. Here we are. I'll just recall what you wrote in November of 2022. My sense is that Trump would gut DeSantis with a dull deer antler. That was according to one insider interviewed by Mark Leibovich, one of my favorite reporters out there. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Great to see you. Thanks, Alex. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. Coming up, the Voting Rights Act saw another setback this week from an appeals court in a decision that could soon find its way before the Supreme Court. What will John Roberts and his justices do next? That's coming up. President Reagan today signed a 25-year extension of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The president, who originally favored only a 10-year extension and came late to endorse this version, had nothing but praise for it today. The right to vote is the crown jewel of American liberties, and we will not see its luster diminished. The bill signing ceremony moved indoors because of the threat of rain was witnessed by some of the president's severest critics, black civil rights leaders and Democratic Senator Edward Kennedy. In April of 1982, President Ronald Reagan signed the third extension of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and he signed it reluctantly because this 25-year extension included an amendment to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the VRA, which prohibits discriminatory voting practices. And the Reagan administration really did not want to sign that. The amendment ensured that victims of discriminatory voting laws would not have to prove that the laws were intentionally designed to be discriminatory. They just had to prove that they were discriminated against, that that was the effect of the law. Now, this issue had been litigated for years, even in the Supreme Court, which ruled in 1980 that, with exceptions, the VRA only forbade intentional discrimination. After that 1980 ruling, James Blackshire, an attorney for the black voters in question, called the decision the biggest step backwards in civil rights to come from the Nixon court. That is why the amendment Reagan signed in the summer of 1982 was so important. It kept the country from taking a giant step backwards. That is why civil rights advocates lobbied so hard in favor of it. And it is why, presumably, the Reagan administration lobbied equally hard against it with the help of a young lawyer named John Roberts. For months before Reagan signed that bill, Roberts, then a special assistant to the attorney general, drafted a series of memos detailing why no amendment should be added to Section 2 of the VRA. He argued Section 2 should be kept the way it was, prohibiting only intentional discrimination and not just discrimination. Roberts argued that violations of the Voting Rights Act should not be made too easy to prove since they provide a basis for the most intrusive interference imaginable by federal courts into state and local processes. Roberts added that revising parts of the VRA would not only be constitutionally suspect, but also contrary to the most fundamental tenets of the legislative process on which the laws of this country are based. Well, John Roberts lost that argument in 1982. Congress passed it, and President Reagan signed the updated Voting Rights Act. But that was just the beginning of John Roberts' work against the VRA. As the Supreme Court Chief Justice, Roberts would get more opportunities to gut the law, starting with Section 5 of the VRA, which was designed to monitor states with a history of racial discrimination. 
The court's conservatives today followed through on a threat they made four years ago to strike at the heart of the Voting Rights Act unless Congress updated it. The ruling deals a crippling and potentially fatal blow to the law signed by President Johnson in 1965, a response to widespread efforts in the South to prevent blacks from voting. And very soon, the Supreme Court could have another chance to erode voting rights protections. On Monday, a federal appeals court panel ruled that Section 2 of the VRA does not allow private plaintiffs to bring lawsuits. Contrary to the way the law has worked up until now, this appeals court now says only the federal government can bring lawsuits alleging violations of the Voting Rights Act. The case is almost certain to reach the Supreme Court, and when it does— Justice Roberts and the other conservatives on the court could continue the campaign to hollow out one of the most important anti-discrimination laws in this country. I'll talk to The Atlantic's Adam Serwer about all of this coming up next. On Monday, a federal appeals court panel ruled that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act does not allow private citizens or civil rights groups to challenge racial discrimination in voting. The ruling stands to further erode the protections of the VRA, and the conservative Supreme Court is expected to weigh in. The Atlantic's Adam Serwer is calling this the decision that could end voting rights. The Constitution is supposed to forbid such discrimination, but that sounds simpler than it is. In practice, if you have enough judges or justices willing to find unconstitutional the laws adopted to enforce that right or willing to rule in such a way that nullifies the ability of those laws to function— You can simply render the 15th Amendment, the one granting black men the right to vote, you can render that useless. Joining me now is Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic. Adam, thanks for being here tonight. Your piece is so essential in this moment. You draw a sort of through line between the justices of the Supreme Court in what you call the twilight of Reconstruction around 1871 and and today. I wonder if you could elaborate on that for folks who haven't yet read the, the piece. Well, I mean, the 15th Amendment was adopted during Reconstruction. uh, And what happened was that it simply ceased to be enforced. The Supreme Court of that time um, simply allowed it to be uh, nullified by the southern states, which wanted to impose a Jim Crow regime on black people in the South. Um, And it required a second Reconstruction uh, to make the rights guaranteed by the 15th 15th Amendment real rights. And what happened in the decades following is that people like John Roberts uh, decided that racism was over, uh, that racial discrimination in voting was not a serious problem anymore, and that the bigger problem was, as he put it as a young attorney in the Justice Department, uh, this interference with the rights of the states uh, to limit voting as they see fit, even if that abridged the rights of black people to vote. Uh, and that really is the problem here. And the question is whether he still has that sort of dorm room libertarian naivete, even now, after Alabama openly defied a Supreme Court ruling in in this past year because they wanted to prevent, they wanted to dilute the votes of black citizens of Alabama. The question is whether he and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who uh, told Alabama that to follow the Supreme Court's ruling and, and, and draw a second black district in Alabama where black voters could, were able to elect the representative of the uh, representative of their choice. The question is whether they are 
committed to this idea of unraveling these laws that protect the right to vote, uh, whether it's a question of ideology or naivete, whether they've been shown just how serious this problem continues to be and therefore understand now why these protections were adopted in the first place, or whether they're so bent on helping the Republican Party disenfranchise their constituents uh, that they'll allow this to go forward. Uh, Adam, to that end, I mean, you 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 assign, like, I, I would say, not the best of motives in terms of the Supreme Court's ruling on that Alabama case, Allen v. Milligan. Can you talk a little bit about how you how you understand the court to have ruled and why you think they voted effectively in support of black voters in that case? Well, there's two cases that we're talking about here, right? There's the initial case in which they upheld the Section 2 challenge um, it, it, that, you know, Alabama had was required to draw a second black district because, you know, a, a large portion of the state's population is black and they only have one majority black district. Um, but the real issue, you know, I'm not in terms of motive. I mean, it's actually quite interesting that Kavanaugh and Roberts upheld the law in that case. But the second time around, Alabama basically said, assume, you know, the, the, the court is majority Republican appointees. So we, we're going to do what they want and they're going to let us do it. And what the court said was, well, no, we're going to uphold the law because to allow you to simply defy, openly defy a ruling like that would undermine our power as Supreme Court justices. If you say that uh, the Supreme Court is it, what the Supreme Court Supreme Court rulings are the law of the land and you allow people to defy those rulings, uh, you know, it's not just going to be Alabama defying them. It's going to be other actors who don't like the outcome of certain cases. So in that case, the decision, I believe, was unanimous uh, in terms of telling Alabama the second time uh, to go back and draw that district. But that was a direct challenge to the power of the Supreme Court. Yeah. And this case is 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 a statutory case. It's not a direct threat to their power. And so they can rule safely without undermining their own authority. It's about the power of the court and not necessarily enfranchising black voters. Adam Sirworth, thank you so much for your time. Happy Thanksgiving to you and to everyone at home. That is our show for this evening. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.